This administration needs to stop with these mandates, stop being involved, and let Florida be Florida, let New York be New York. With the Supreme Court blocking the Biden administration's mandates for private businesses, I sat down with Robert Henneke, executive director and general counsel at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's the lead counsel on one of the key lawsuits filed challenging the constitutionality of the mandates for private businesses. In this interview, filmed before the Supreme Court made its decision, Henneke accurately predicts the outcome and offers insight into the thinking of the Supreme Court. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellick. Robert Henneke, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm going to start with, uh, I guess, the top headline on our website, on the Epoch Times right now. I'm just going to read it to you. Biden's vaccine mandate for large private employers takes effect amid ongoing Supreme Court battle. And you're, of course, uh, and I'm going to tell you how, but you're, of course, you know, deeply involved in said Supreme Court battle. And uh, yeah, so why don't you tell me how you came to be involved, where this whole thing stands and how we got here? Well, thank you. So at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, I lead our Public Interest Litigation Center, where for over six years, we have brought lawsuits challenging unconstitutional action by the federal government. We represent businesses and industries in fighting back where they may not have the resources themselves to challenge unlawful practices, and we can help them in cases that that fight overreach and limit the administrative state. And in this case, we represent a coalition of temporary Texas staffing companies who asked us to represent them to challenge the unconstitutional private employer vaccine mandate by the Biden administration. So we brought suit uh, immediately when the vaccine mandate uh, became official. Uh, it was in fact, it was our case that won the initial stay of the vaccine mandate by the Fifth Circuit. They granted our motion uh, stopping the mandate initially. And we continue to represent our clients all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, in seeking to have this policy by the Biden administration struck down and recognized as unlawful. Well, okay. And so I think it was something like December 17th that uh, the stay was lifted now by the Sixth Circuit. Um, and I, I mean, for a lot of us, right, this is all very, very complex, right? Like, how, to, how did we get go from the fifth to the sixth? And now we you know here we are at the Supreme Court, and we might hear something about it in the next few days, even before we actually publish this interview. So can you give us a picture of how, how this whole process works? Well, absolutely. And it, it has been confusing because in many ways, it's been the wild, wild west of policymaking. I mean, typically in the administrative process, you'll have uh, months of notice where you'll have, you know, opportunities for stakeholders to comment. And then the federal agency will review those comments and, and publish a proposed rule that then, you know, takes more time before it goes into effect. Here, this administration used a very obscure provision uh, called an emergency temporary standard found within the uh, Occupational Health Safety Act, the, the federal agency that regulates workplace safety. And on an emergency basis, they implemented this private employer vaccine mandate requiring that all employers of 100 or more employees had to require that their employees be uh, vaccinated or be 
tested on a regular basis or be threatened with termination, but rather than months, if not sometimes years of this process playing out, uh, the administration issued the rule and then was going to have it go into effect a couple of months later. And so all of the litigation that's happened since the first week of November, which normally would be stretched out over periods of months and years while it went through the process, has been rushed up to the Supreme Court on as fast a track of process you can find. Yet still, even though recently the Supreme Court held arguments on the case, it has not yet issued its opinion. Maybe it will today. Uh, but the rule continues to start with the deadlines and enforcement requirements that is really causing uncertainty among business and industry. Well, yeah. And so this, this is actually kind of a question, right? If there is, I mean, how many cases are there, first of all? Well, that's so initially, um, and this was uh, fascinating to be part of, uh, but we filed our case in the Fifth Circuit, which is in Texas, uh, where our clients are. But there were 34 different lawsuits that were filed challenging the Biden administration. And under this obscure provision that the administrative used, this emergency temporary standard process, the rules say that uh, all of the cases that challenge a particular standard get consolidated into one circuit. So we won our stay at the Fifth Circuit because we immediately asked for emergency relief. And in fact, the Fifth Circuit on a Saturday stepped in and granted our initial stay motion. But then the following week, all 34 cases were consolidated into the Sixth Circuit, uh, which is based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was a different set of judges there that disagreed with the Fifth Circuit and decided to lift the stay. And so it was on again, off again, uh, but then when the stay was lifted, the only recourse that we had, now that we had all been consolidated into one case, was to seek emergency relief from the U.S. Supreme Court to stop this from being enforced against businesses before the, the important legal questions can be fully adjudicated. So wait, so at the moment, there could be you know, this sort of relief the Supreme Court could grant it at the same time it could make some specific decisions about the case because there's already been arguments. Um, you know, are you making arguments, you know, like to t t and in, in your case, how does that work? How, who decides which of these cases get heard? Or is it just one big case all of a sudden? Well, again, the, the, the law that the Biden administration is claiming that gives it the authority to do this was never intended to have a nationwide healthcare requirement, like they've kind of square peg into round hole with this vaccine mandate. And so the 34 cases were all consolidated. Uh, each of the 34 cases were appealed to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis. And then the Supreme Court just picked two of the cases to have argument on kind of representing the entire coalition. And so that argument was led by the Attorney General of Ohio uh, and uh, an attorney that represented the uh, National Federation of Independent Business and other kind of national trade associations. Um, but my case is still out there. And presumably, when the Supreme Court agrees that this vaccine mandate is at least questionable enough in law to re-implement the stay, and the case goes back down to the Sixth Circuit, then, then I hope to have a chance to argue and litigate the constitutional challenges that we brought to what the Biden administration did.
So is there anything like specific that you can glean as to why these two cases were chosen, for example, and not yours or any of the other, I guess it's how, what, 31 others, right, that would be candidates? I think a common characteristic and, you know, as a, a, a Supreme Court litigator and also a, you know, a follower of the court, you really can see today's Supreme Court as a 333 court. You know, with the changes, the the appointments that President Trump made, uh, that now you have, you know, I think commonly agreed are three liberal justices, Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor. Certainly you have three conservative justices with Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito. But you have three justices in the middle, led by Chief Justice John Roberts, and now Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh, that are kind of the swing votes either way. And part of the characteristic of the court that on paper looks like a 6-3 Republican court, but is really kind of a 3-3-3, is that some of the cases presented to the court have been decided on more narrow grounds, Mm. where you've had the, the conservative three having to negotiate an outcome with the middle three. And so I think the two cases that were chosen were chosen because they challenged the vaccine mandate on textual statutory grounds, mm-hmm. arguing that the statute that the Biden administration claimed that gave it the authority to do that. If you read that text, it didn't allow for vaccine requirements for employees. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, and based on the questioning of the justices, I think it's likely that the outcome of this case could be to find that the statute that the Biden administration claims does not give it the authority to do this, but decline to reach some of the bigger and broader constitutional questions that this court has kind of been reluctant to take on. So it it could very well be a win, so to speak, in striking down the vaccine mandates but leave unresolved the the bigger, broader questions about whether the federal government has the authority to do this in the first place. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. I mean, because it's not necessarily obvious that this distinction exists, I mean, like to the layperson, right? This is, these are the kinds of things that keep you up at night, right? <laughs> um, well, so what what is the bigger and broader question? And is this a is this a separation of powers question? Is that what you're talking about? I mean, can you dig it, into this for me? Yeah. It's both. We brought two different constitutional challenges to the private employer vaccine mandate. You know, we learned from, from Civics 101 that this country was established to have purposefully a federal government of limited powers. Our founding fathers who had just fought and won independence from the British crown did not want to create another all-powerful national government. They saw that the proper, you know, foundation for policymaking should be in the states. And so they intentionally in the Constitution wrote the federal government to only have specific limited enumerated powers that are found in Article 1, Section 8. If the Constitution doesn't say the federal government can do it, the federal government cannot do it. And so two different challenges that we brought. Number one, it's very important in the separation of powers that each of the branches of government serve their distinct roles and have limited powers. 
It's always been the Congress of the United States under Article I that has the power under the Constitution to pass laws and create policy for uh, the federal government. It's the executive branch that's tasked with carrying out those laws and policy. So one of the constitutional claims that we brought was through the non-delegation doctrine where we were arguing that this vaccine mandate that the Biden administration had done through the executive branch was unconstitutional because Congress never passed a law giving the executive branch the power to take this kind of step. And so it violates the Constitution for the executive branch to claim powers that it hasn't been given uh, by the legislative branch. But the bigger question from that is that whether the federal government at all Congress, executive branch, any part of the federal government could do this. The federal government claims that this is part of their power to regulate interstate commerce, Hmm. uh, the commerce amongst the states, which is one of the powers that's found in the Constitution. We have challenged that, saying that requiring an individual in a single state to take a medical procedure that they would not choose to do or face risk of termination from their job does not trigger interstate commerce. It's not an interstate commercial activity. It's not part of the role of federal government to regulate. So this very concept of a private citizen vaccine mandate is unconstitutional because the federal government does not have the power to do it. And I guess another thing that it, that has kind of been on my mind, and you know, you mentioned that it's this three 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 court, right? Um, Something that, that has been in the news a bit has been how uh, Justice Sotomayor um, was very off in one of her statements in terms of kind of the realities of the threat to children. Of Now, of course, pro hopefully she's, you know, kind of eviscerating whoever did the prep work for her. I mean, I, I would hope that's the case, but that's a scary proposition that somehow information could get to that level and we, you know, there's many people that really look to the Supreme Court as this place where, you know, bastion of true knowledge or dealing with at least dealing with true knowledge and dealing with law and so forth. But um, what happens when errors of this magnitude are introduced somehow into the decision making process? I think it runs the risk of, of corrupting the outcome. That's where she claimed these extraordinarily exaggerated numbers in terms of hospitalizations of children that just factually is not even close to being true. You know, typically in a legal proceeding that makes its way up to the Supreme Court, you've had two separate proceedings below. You've had the trial at the district court where witness testimony, evidence is collected, all of that is compiled in front of a jury that's able to listen to all of the evidence, weigh all the facts, and then make a decision. Then you've had an appellate court that has reviewed the entire record, heard arguments of counsel, taken brief, and, and then issued an opinion that takes all of that into account. Only at that point do cases then go up to the Supreme Court, where, of course, we know that few are granted. Here, we've, we've circumvented all of that. Uh, the Supreme Court has correctly acted on an emergency basis to address the implementation of this vaccine mandate, but only because the Biden administration has insisted on doing, doing so on such 
an expedited basis where, you know, several justices have pointed out that, you know, even though, of course, the, the health, uh, you know, pandemic concerns continue, you know, we're two years into this. So, you know, the claim of any kind of current emergency basis seems to ring hollow, especially given the lack of, of haste that this administration has had, you know, in moving forward with this. And then when they put it into effect, it has to be immediately. So, you know, I think that that was reflected somewhat in the off-base questions by Justice Sotomayor that, uh, you know, maybe she's looking at, you know, Huffington Post or online websites for her source of information rather than having a real developed record uh, to be able to base her questions on. So as we speak right now, where are we at? The Supreme Court could be making some decisions literally as we speak or in the next few days, even before we premiere this interview. So where are we at? So there's three possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. When the Sixth Circuit decided to lift the stay to allow the vaccine mandate to go into effect, uh, all of us, all the various cases appealed seeking emergency relief from the Supreme Court to put the stay back into effect to stop this from being enforced against American citizens and businesses across the country. So option one is the Supreme Court could say, we're not deciding the ultimate question, but there's enough here for us to give pause and let the legal proceedings play out. And so we are going to put back into effect the stay that was ordered by the Fifth Circuit to allow at least full litigation on the important questions presented. So it would be a timeout, but it wouldn't be, you know, the end of the game. The second option is the Supreme Court could decide the merits. They could say, we've heard enough. Uh, we understand this well enough that we're just going to decide uh, whether the Biden administration has the, the legal power, the constitutional power to do this. And so we're just going to decide it once and for all, uh, this, the questions about the legality over these vaccine mandates. That would resolve everything. The final word would be spoken by the Supreme Court. The third option, which I, I think is less likely, but is certainly on the table, and, and really gives me concern for the future of this country as a, a tipping point moment in the history of the COVID pandemic is what happens if our side loses and the Supreme Court de declines to act, declines to re-implement the stay or upholds the Biden administration power to do this, especially with the, the haste and the short time frame that the Biden administration has put uh, forcing employers to comply with this or face stiff fines and penalties, um, I think you could see incredible damage done to our economy overnight. And specifically, even if you look at the statistics that say that 10, maybe 15% of Americans for reasons that we shouldn't have to have them justify, but are personal reasons for themselves as to why they've not received any of the COVID vaccines. If it's just that smaller percentage that are now eliminated from the workforce, 
that will be incredibly destructive when you look at the trucking industry, when you look at the transportation industry, when you look at our ports of entry, when you look at our healthcare industry. Eliminating 10 to 15 percent of those workforces in any single one of those industries will be in complete, very damaging and very disruptive, you know, especially during this time of winter. A uh, time of extreme cold here in the north part of the United States, where it's essential that goods and services are able to be delivered in a timely manner for people to be able to survive uh, and exist during the harshest months of the year. You mentioned a little earlier that you know having incorrect information could somehow corrupt the process. I just want to talk a little bit about the implications of that because, for example, there's been multiple studies now done that show that the perception of risk from the virus of certain portions of the population is dramatically out of touch with the actual risk, for example. And these sorts of things could color, you know, even reading of scientific papers, reading of scientific literature. And of course, you know, there's there's all sorts of people in the process, right, of this. And this is something that I've been kind of struggling with, this this reality that there's there's some portion of the population that doesn't understand the reality or sees sees the reality as quite different than what let's say you know the the scientific literature says today right so what are the implications of um i guess mistaken information driving this decision making well that's a great question and and you saw the other part of the seriousness about some of the uh, factual misstatements made by Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor is making you wonder if they are basing their decision based on inaccurate information that's going to influence how they vote on on the uh, the outcome of the case, and it also kind of makes you wonder if their views, their personal views about the vaccine issue are driving their feelings as opposed to, you know, what the law says, what the text of the law commands the courts to, to follow. It's, it's obviously a very emotional issue, but we are seemingly far detached from reality in some ways where, you know, the, the present day of 2022 and what it looks like today is, is a far cry from what the status quo was back in early September when President Biden first announced that he was going to implement this vaccine mandate. And so it, it shouldn't be the desire of the court to have an outcome based on their personal feelings. But you certainly wonder if that's what's motivating some of the justices when they're making these emotionally charged statements from the bench that are immediately proven uh, to be untrue. Is there some point in this process where, you know, good, accurate information could be presented to the justices in given the reality that we understand right now or that there's certainly quite a bit of misinformation out there? And I think some of the misinformation was actually demonstrated in the way that the arguments played out. To me, it was very fascinating to see in the context of the Supreme Court argument over the vaccine mandate, you know, we know that every member of the Supreme Court has been fully vaccinated and has received the booster shot. 
Uh, and yet, for example, Justice Sotomayor refused to participate in the argument in person. Rather, she did it via phone from her, from her chambers. And you had all of the attorneys who were going to argue before the court had been vaccinated, uh, but two of the attorneys uh, tested positive for COVID prior to the argument so that they had to, to argue remote. So in this context of the federal government wanting to mandate vaccines on 80 million American citizens, you know, it kind of, to your point about, you know, questioning the reality and the status quo, seemed in sharp contrast to how the actual argument played out, where one of the justices, you know, obviously is not comfortable enough with her vaccination status to participate in person. And several of the counsel who had undertaken this, which the federal government wants to command everyone to have to do, still got sick. So it begs the question, I wish you could have a real, you know, solid discussion with the policymakers and the administration at this point in time to say, what are you trying to accomplish? And how do you think that this does it? Because certainly to your point, the current data, the current facts, the current realities of the Omicron variant and what people are experiencing now is in kind of sharp contrast to the policymaking choices and, and data that existed even three, four months ago. And so it's not catching up. And potentially, you know, the Supreme Court could be resolving this case in total without even having the opportunity to consider current information. Well, and, and that's and that's exactly it, because things are changing quickly. As you mentioned, this has been fast tracked, you know, based on, you know, the fact that it's an apparent emergency and things do change. And so, you know, I, one would hope that the newest information is available. But I think to the point, yeah. part of that as well, Jan, is that this is going back to the Constitution, but this kind of shows why the founding fathers did not give this sort of power to the federal government. Mm. It shows how well it doesn't work, how cumbersome and, you know, the federal government it is when they try to implement this type of national policy, especially one that requires individuals to have invasive medical procedures done to themselves against their will. And really why in our system of government, it's supposed to be the states that are the ones that are really making healthcare policy and implementing regulations and laws for the health, safety, and welfare of their citizens. I think as, as broken and as backwards as this federal process has been that we see playing out in front of our own eyes really kind of makes the case for federalism and shows us why this is not a proper role for the Biden administration, but really why the federal government should get out of the way and let states be specifically responsive to the needs of their citizens in their area on how best to address the, uh, the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so you can compare, for example, Florida versus California versus New York, you know, versus Texas, mm -hmm. for example, and so, some others, and you can get some ideas about what policies are effective and what aren't, which you ones know, aren't. Related to this yeah. was the recent statement by President Biden about COVID overall. 
uh, where he said, you know, this is not going to be fixed by the federal government. It's going to have to be addressed by the states. And he was on a call with with uh, governors from across the nation, which is kind of ironic because, uh, you know, you almost want to introduce President Biden of 2022 to President Biden of 2020 when he was running for office on the promise that if he was elected president, he would fix COVID and would do a better job. And now seemingly he wants to abandon that um, correctly to the states, but maybe, you know, from his perspective, just trying to pass the buck. Um, but that is the right direction that that should be. And, and if this administration, if President Biden has come now to the realization that the states are uh, the laboratories of democracy and, and the best sources of policymaking, then this administration needs to stop with these mandates, stop being involved and let, you know, Florida be Florida, let New York be New York and let the state governors of each of these states uh, address, work with their state legislatures and adopt health care policies that are going to work, you know, best for the people from Denver to any Indianapolis and every place in between. So one of the things that came to my attention recently is that aside from this federal uh, private employer mandate, New York City has a citywide employer mandate that's been instituted. And I, I thought that was interesting. So what happens in a situation where this, a federal, this federal mandate, for example, gets, um, let's say it gets struck down, okay, for a whole suite of reasons. And so, but now New York City has... Uh, a mandate itself that it's instituting. Um, does that does does that decision making at the Supreme Court on those cases impact that? Not necessarily. And again, it depends on how limited the Supreme Court ruling is. And and this goes back to why I believe that on the federal vaccine mandates, the Supreme Court's going to land on a very limited position that just looks at the text of the federal statute to say this statute does not give the Biden administration the authority to do this. I do think that there's a majority of the Supreme Court that is comfortable at some level with vaccine mandates. I disagree with that. But, you know, separately, you've seen efforts by private parties to seek emergency relief to challenge the state vaccine mandates in uh, Indiana, in New York, in Maine. And in each of those cases, the Supreme Court has declined to accept the emergency appeal and has let those state-based vaccine mandates remain in place. Mm. So as I look at the court, as I look at, you know, where five justices may be, you know, they accepted this case challenging the Biden vaccine mandates, but they rejected other cases that had come from state vaccine mandates. And what that tells me is that the court may be thinking this is not proper for the federal government, but we're not going to disturb the states in their power to regulate and adopt laws for public health and safety. So it could leave a situation where it'll be a state by state decision. Um, I think that would go too far. I still think that intrudes upon the personal autonomy and, and liberty of the individual. But it does also restore kind of the states as the, the policymakers of the nation. And it at least allows citizens to live 
and work in a state that may have policies and laws that best reflect their, their views. So if the federal mandate is struck down, but the Supreme Court allows state mandates to, see, to, to remain, you may see some kind of migration of people you, you know, moving away from or towards states that have the health care policies that they think are you know, the best for themselves and their family. To your point, I know that Florida has seen a, quite an influx of, uh, of population in the last year, at least and probably longer. One would guess it had, that this has something to do with it. It is. It's the growing, you know, you've seen the trend for a little while. Uh, states, uh, high tax, high regulatory, big government states like New York, uh, Illinois, California, uh, have lost population over the last 10 years. The census has shown that. And at the same time, those individuals are flowing towards states that have had quite the opposite. States like Texas that have uh, a low tax, low regulatory, pro-business kind of uh, you know, policy making has the proofs been in the pudding as you've had the increase of population as businesses have moved there. And I think this could be another example of where, you know, for individuals that don't want to have government into their personal business in, ter in terms of healthcare choices, will move to those kind of states where those policies best reflect their personal beliefs. And if you want to live in a state that has Pass vaccine passports and vaccine mandates and heavy healthcare regulatory requirements. Uh, good for you. Choose one of those states to live in, and you know we'll kind of see how uh, the American population sorts itself out. Uh, one thing that's actually been on my mind is you know there are uh, vaccines that are kind of required for certain kinds of work. For example, right, there's workplaces that do this. How is how is this vaccine mandate different than, you know, I guess past vaccine mandates for specific types of work? I think a couple of things, and and um, you know, my understanding of other vaccine mandates that have been, you know, is that they've allowed for exceptions. Uh, they've allowed for individuals to opt out that have you know, sincere and deep, deeply held religious beliefs that prohibit them because of their faith from obtaining a particular type of vaccine. You know, you also have generally recognition of natural immunity, uh, where someone who has contracted a, a virus, uh, you know, is immune from that because they have the antibodies built up. And so for them, a vaccine serves no purpose. You know, those kind of common recognitions that have existed in other type of mandatory vaccine situations have been completely set aside here by this administration where, you know, they have insisted on one way and only one way of acquiescence and have done so in an unprecedented way that really intrudes upon individual liberties. Right. And that's fascinating because there's so many countries that have some something like a mandate where they accept natural immunity for, well, obvious reasons like, that you've already mentioned. It's just a bizarre thing that, that is very difficult for a lot of people to understand. Okay, so you know, as we're, as we're kind of finishing up here, let's say that the Supreme Court decides that these mandates are legitimate, that it's okay to do this kind of thing in the context that you described. That sets a precedent of some sort, 
Um, and, you know, above and beyond the sort of economic harms that you were describing and so forth. What, what does that mean for law in America? You know, I think it, it would be a pivot point in our jurisprudence. You know, so far, you know, when we've gotten to important questions about federal power under the Commerce Clause, uh, the Supreme Court has, has largely during my lifetime made the decisions that have limited federal power. Um, even though, for example, over 10 years ago, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act as a tax, it did in the same opinion correctly hold that it was unconstitutional for the government to command you to purchase health insurance that you did not want under the Commerce Clause. And it's interesting how in that argument, part of what the justices decided then was whether the government could command a vaccine. And it was agreed during that argument that, of course, that would go way too far. Well, a lot changes in 10 years. But if this case goes the wrong way and the Supreme Court allows this to stand, it, it really eliminates the, the limits that we have in our government. You know, one of the things that, that has been pointed out that this administration has been doing, and they did it with the vaccine mandate, they did it with the uh, prohibition on residential evictions um, that was struck down by the Supreme Court last summer, has been in, in going and, you know, almost Google searching the federal register to find an obscure statute that's vague enough to do what the administration wants to do. And given how expansive the federal laws are and the federal regulations are, that if the Supreme Court will not hold the Biden administration accountable and at the very least strike down uh, unlawful executive mandates based on antiquated statutes that were never intended to implement the type of policies being proposed today, then we're all just at the mercy of the ruling class bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. and their creativity in terms of finding, you know, some ambiguous statute that they can argue gives them the power to do anything that they want. And if we've done that, then we've, we've lost our system of government. We've lost our checks and balances. We've lost our concept of federalism and have largely, you know, at that point will be just in a posture where, you know, you now have an all power, powerful federal national government that was rejected at the very foundation of the creation of our country. Well, and I think you've already spoken to this a little bit, but I guess the final question, um, your expectation on the decision. My expectation is that a majority of the Supreme Court um, will find that the text of the statutes relied upon by the Biden administration do not give it authority to implement this private employer vaccine mandate. And so in that way, it will be a win for our side, but only a partial win. It'll be, you know, missing the forest for the trees, because my concern is, is that as long as the Supreme Court decides these type of cases on very limited textual statutory basis and does not address the overall constitutional issues and dimensions that are in play, 
we're just going to continue to play whack-a-mole where the next type of COVID mandate from a different statute or a different agency, you know, will be fought over uh, without really resolving the core powers that are at issue. So my prediction is a win, but a win that's going to require this battle to be fought another day until we get this court to really look at um, the limits on this federal government and a, and a willingness to address those key questions. Well, Robert Henneke, it's such a pleasure to have you on. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.